This morning we're looking at James 2, uh, 1 through 19. James 2, 1 through 19. You'll find it on the screen behind me, on the screen in front of you. Before we read it, let's pray together. We just spend a, a couple of moments, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to, to quiet ourselves. But just simply breathe. And remind ourselves that you are as close to us as the air that we breathe. That you are with us, that you are in us, that you are among us. And as we open up this, this book, these ancient words, that through, through them you speak to us. Somehow the Holy Spirit shows up and, and gets in the mix and we hear your voice. So we pray for that to happen this morning. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. James 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, my family, my siblings, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Bomb shell right out the gate this morning. His whole world, his whole culture, the, the water in which he swam was built on favoritism, was built on hierarchy, was built on this system of honor and shame and who held the power and, and who was supposed to submit to that power. The whole world was built that way. And he says, my siblings, my family, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, ah, here's a seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law, the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it? What good is it, fam, if someone claims to have faith 
but has no deeds. Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but doesn't do anything about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, by faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, I have, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds, by what I do. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. We'll go that far. So, I don't know if you caught it from the last time we were together, and now this time today. Um, James is kind of going off on a rant. Um, and I, I think it's a good rant, and I think it's a rant that maybe, maybe we need today, maybe, especially the, the church in our culture. I think it's a rant that maybe, maybe we need to hear today, and maybe we need to live into a little bit. And because um, I think it's good. I think it's beautiful. Um, it seems to me that James, at some point in his life, uh, sort of had an, an awakening deep in his soul. Uh, he had this powerful experience. Maybe it even happened uh, in a setting kind of like this, within worship, right? He tells a little story or gives a little scenario later on that we'll talk about. Maybe that actually happened. Maybe it didn't. We don't know. But at some point in his life, he had this experience, a spiritual awakening, awakening in his soul that was so powerful that he had to go home and write a letter about it. Not just any letter, but it, it was a protest letter. He saw some things that were happening within the community of Jesus people, and he was like, nah, man, uh-uh. We can't be engaged in stuff like this. We can't do this. Not any longer. And so he sat down, he wrote a letter to the pastor and the elders, and that pastor, and that letter got handed down and down. It made itself into the Bible, and now 2,000, 2000-ish years later, we still get to read it, we get to look at it, and we get to decide what to do with it. So in this letter, James sort of talks about something underneath the surface. It's a, it's a particular kind of power that's available to, to people who have faith in Jesus, right? It's a power that, that creates a new kind of community that acts very peculiar. It looks peculiar and acts very differently than the rest of the world. It's a power that transforms people into what a guy named Brian McLaren calls secret agents of the kingdom of God. It's underneath the service. It's not a, a power that is overlorded, lorded over other people. It's kind of a, a power that's underneath the surface. And James wastes no time telling us where that power comes from. In the beginning of the letter, he introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he identifies the people to whom he's writing as people who have faith in our glorious Lord and Jesus Christ. And then the argument throughout this entire letter is that having faith in Jesus changes everything about the way that we live our lives. Having faith in Jesus changes everything. Everything we say Everything we do, every relationship we have, every action we take is informed by and connected to our faith 
in Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why I love James so, so much. He doesn't let us slip past the real-life faith and action stuff. No, no, no. In fact, that's his point. He doesn't let us merely spiritualize our faith or cut it in half and make it simply a, a free ticket to heaven after we die. He doesn't call this, this time that we have here on earth from birth to death a, a dress rehearsal for heaven where we'll spend most of our existence to throw shade at a book written by somebody 20 some odd years ago. It was very purposeful and he was very driven in writing it. But anyway, this is not dress rehearsal. No, no, no. This is the real deal. This is the real deal. There's no escapist theology here. It's all down and dirty, do the hard stuff of life. For James, there's no faith. There's no faith without following Jesus. For James, there's no faith in Jesus without doing the very same things that we see Jesus doing when we read about him in the Gospels. There's no faith in Jesus without us doing those exact same things within our own communities. There's no faith in Jesus for James, right? Unless when we see Jesus hanging out with the kind of people he's hanging out with in the Gospels, if we're not hanging out with the very same kinds of people. For James, if we have faith that Jesus has the power to save us from our sins and resurrect us so that we'll live with God forever, if we believe that Jesus has the power of resurrection over our dead bodies after we die, we better have faith that Jesus has the power to start that resurrection now, to start that transformation now, so that we can quit having silly arguments about things and get busy working with Jesus, transforming the world. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? What good is it, siblings? What good is it, family, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Mike, drop. Right? I love that. I love that line. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You just look at me and you'll know. Okay then, James, if Jesus' power is real and as potent as you say it is, and what shall we do? And he gets really practical and simple. He says, don't show favoritism. Jesus' people must not show favoritism. Actually, he gets kind of snarky here. If you translate it a certain way, it, most other translations translate it as a question. And he, he goes like this. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really have faith? Because I'm not so sure. Do you really have faith? James says, don't show favoritism. And then, if that command isn't enough, he like throws in a scenario. Like, if this is James, the brother of Jesus, He's had a lot of practice listening to someone come up with some super amazing stories. He puts sort of a scenario, a story behind it to put some flesh and blood on it so that we can see it, so that we can look at it, so that we can enter into it 
and feel it. And the story goes something like this. Two, two very different people, almost at the same time, walk into a place of worship, not unlike the place of worship we have here. The first guy walks in, and he's dressed like you wouldn't believe. Oh, my goodness, he's got the best money he can buy. He's got a gold ring on his finger. This dude is perfectly manicured. He looks good, and he smells even better. Right on his heels, there's another guy. He's dressed in the nastiest clothes money could buy, if he even bought them. Somebody probably gave them to him, or maybe he found them in somebody's garbage. Like his hair is all unkempt, he hasn't shaved. You can tell he hasn't showered because his smell, oof, his smell announces his presence. It wasn't a very big church, probably not very much bigger than this, if not smaller. So everybody in the place could see what was taking place. The usher greeted the rich guy at the, at the door. It was like, hey, welcome. Glad that you're here. Brought him up to the best seat in the house, front and center. Did y'all not know that was the best seat in the house? It's right there. Right there. Nobody ever sits there. Like, we could puts him down there and says, I'm glad you're here. Have a seat. And then he walks to the back, and he says to the other guy, man, place is packed. You're welcome to stand here by the door if you want. You could sit at my feet and watch. What? Just imagine that. Imagine it. Now, here's the deal. Did James have that experience in a place of worship like this? Like, is this a story? Maybe. We don't know. Or maybe it's just a scenario, a story, to sort of get us thinking. Maybe it's a story to get our attention. Now, here's the deal. Someone, if that scenario happened here, I'm reasonably certain we would handle things, we would handle things okay. I think it would be okay. Like, it wouldn't go down the way James just described that it would go down because I think God is creating something different here, right? So maybe James's point is bigger. Maybe it's larger. Maybe it's deeper than that. Here's what I think James might be doing. We don't know for sure, mere speculation, but this is what I think James might be doing. I think James... I think he's taking the wider cultural realities in which they live, right? and he's shrinking them down really small and personal so that we can focus with laser-like focus and understand just how absurd those cultural realities really are taking the cultural realities in which they live, built upon favoritism, built upon hierarchy, built upon honor-shame, and he's bringing them down to a real personal level so that we can look at them and go, well, that's just dumb. No, no, no. Like, it certainly does get us thinking about the gap between the rich and the poor, 
in our world, doesn't it? Between the haves and the have-nots. And it ought to make us think about how we contribute to the, the widening of that gap. Because there's a valley there. How do we contribute to the deepening of that value? Because here's the deal. Most of us here in this room, we're doing okay for ourselves. And maybe this country has done it better than any in the history of the world, so that most people are relatively comfortable. So in reality, most of us are there. Like, we're doing okay. We're the rich. We have. But because of the world we live in, we're taught to make certain assumptions about people who don't have what we have. We automatically do this judging with evil thoughts thing that James is talking about, right? We catch this from the world in which we live because this is our national story that we tell ourselves. When we see a person who has obviously not had it like we've had it, doesn't have what we have, sometimes we end up thinking that, well, they're just lazy. Clearly, they haven't worked as hard as they could. This is the land of opportunity where if you just work hard enough, you'll be able to get ahead. If you just put in enough time, if you just put in enough effort, you'll be able to accomplish your goals and achieve your dreams. The sky's the limit, man. It's right there for you. It's laid out for you. Just work hard, go get it. So these are the kinds of things. We don't have to be, we don't have to actually believe them, but sometimes these thoughts come into our head because this is the story that we hear over and over and over again. We're taught that it's survival of the fittest. We don't, like being, we don't like being connected to Darwin, but this is social Darwinism. Only the strong survive. We're like, we live into it. And I think that when we start making these assumptions, I think we're missing the big picture because we don't have any idea what people have been through, are going through. Maybe they came from a broken home. Maybe, she's, maybe she was abused by an al- alcoholic Father, maybe there are no jobs. Maybe he's dealing with mental illness from time spent serving in a war. Maybe, maybe the school he attended just didn't do the job or couldn't do the job because the funding wasn't there because it was pulled and given to somewhere else. Sometimes cultural realities make it impossible for people to make a living for themselves no matter how hard they work or no matter how hard they're willing to work. And if we just ignore these cultural realities, we're living into this system of favoritism. And there are other cultural realities we could talk about too. There are lots of people who suffer under a culture of favoritism. Lots of people who feel the, the adverse effects. Women still feel it. It's just true. People of color feel it hard. People with mental health issues feel it. The LGBTQ plus community, they know what it's like to feel the adverse effects of favoritism. And when we ignore those cultural realities, when we keep our mouths shut, when we don't say anything about it, when these realities that keep other people pushed to the outside, it's like we're saying to them, why don't you just go stand over there by the door so we don't have to deal with you? And most of the times, we keep our mouths shut. We don't say anything about it. We ignore it because for most of us, the system works quite well for us. 
works really well. And if we say anything, we might lose the advantage we have. We don't have to ignore them. We don't have to. We can say. We can do. James says, do. Now, I want to stop here. Pause, not stop, pause. And I want to say something that I think is significant about the Bible, about, about the Scriptures. Um, and there, there are some people within the Christian community who would, who would really disagree with me, with what I'm about to say. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think there's an argument to be made in, in defense of the, the other side. I just don't. It's not there. I don't, I don't think so. The Bible isn't univocal. By that I mean it doesn't speak with one voice. There are lots of voices in the Bible speaking to all sorts of different issues. And if you read the Bible and pay attention to the Bible, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that it's not black and white. It's actually pretty gray. And here we have in the Bible one of those instances where the Bible is profoundly egalitarian. It is profoundly, it is shockingly egalitarian. Every person is made in the image of God and ought to be treated equally no matter who they are. Egalitarianism. It's right there. There are lots of other places in the scriptures that will teach that viewpoint. You can find other viewpoints. It's all over the place. All over the place in the Bible. Like you can find this idea of what we today call complementarianism, which just says that people are created differently. They complement each other, and when they work together in proper order, things work out right. But there's a hierarchy there. One person holds all the power, and the other person has to submit. You can find that voice, too, in the Bible. It's there. You can defend that viewpoint with Scripture. I want you to listen to these words from a guy named Walter Brueggemann. You can look him up. Walter Brueggemann, he's probably one of the most, if not the most well-respected Old Testament Christian scholar in the world today. You can look him up. He says this, The Bible does not speak with a single voice on any topic. Inspired by God as it is, all sorts of persons have a say in the complexity of Scripture, and we are under mandate to listen as best we can to all of its voices. And then he goes on to conclude, and I agree with him, and I will put it in my own words, right? We then get to choose which voice to privilege. We then get to choose which voice to lean into. We have a choice in the matter. We can privilege the texts in Scripture that exclude. We can privilege the texts in Scripture which promote hierarchy and submissiveness, or we can choose to privilege those texts that welcome. We can choose to privilege the texts that include, that expand the love of God. But we have to recognize that whatever choice you make, you've made a choice. 
You've made that choice because the Bible doesn't speak with one voice. We get to choose. Are we clear on that? We get to choose. And here's a voice in James saying, don't show favoritism. Don't live into the way the world is working. No, don't live into that. Swim upstream. You have a choice to make. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to do it. Why does he make a big deal out of this? Why is this such a big deal? I think he, he makes a big deal out of it, and he gives us a clue by the, word, by the words he keeps using. He keeps using this Greek word, adelphoi. Literally means, my brothers. Because back then, patriarchal society, you didn't need to include the sisters. So it's brothers. Today we would say brothers and sisters. Today we would even speak more inclusively and say, my siblings, my family. We are all family. All people created in the image of God. This is the powerful, radical tradition that we share. All people are created equal in God's eyes. We are family. All people are created in the image of God, just as they are. We are all family, and everybody deserves to be treated with the same kind of dignity. There's no head of the table we're sitting around here. We're all on the same level. There are other places you can find this idea too. Paul said it a different way. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those hierarchies, no, not anymore. Favoritism, uh-uh, not anymore. The systems in place that set up these realities, no, no, you don't have to live into them. You can go the opposite direction. You can speak up. You can show people with your actions. Again, that's the power of Jesus. So I think when we think about these systems that are in place that, that keep other people excluded, for the benefit of others, it tends to get us overwhelmed, doesn't it? Like, ah, like this, this is a societal thing. What do I do? How can I even begin? This is much, much too big. We can become cynical and say, there's nothing we can do about it. It's too big for me. It's just the way things are. Or we can make a difference. We can decide to do something. And where do we start? Maybe we start with our own relationships. Maybe we start with our own neighbors. Maybe we start with the people we meet out there on the street. Maybe we start small as a little church and figure out how can we do this? Maybe that's why we do what we do at the bridge home every Memorial Day and every Labor Day because we're like, no. We're going to fight the system. We're going to do it one small step at a time. So we start small individual relationships because relationships matter. Oh, you have no idea of the impact you could have on the people you already know. You have no idea if you would just speak up, say something, stand in solidarity with, you can make a big difference. Relationships matter. A few years ago, I was driving in my van. I was leaving Firehouse Subs because I wanted to eat lunch at Firehouse Subs, and I was wanting to turn out onto South Duff, and there was busy traffic, and somebody knocked on my passenger window, and I looked over, and there was a guy in this big gray beard wearing really dirty clothes, and I was like, 
that's weird. So I rolled down my window and said, hi. He said, can you take me to Hy-Vee Gas? I said, sure, why not? He got in, we started driving, tried to make small talk, wasn't working, didn't want to talk. We pull into Hy-Vee Gas, I stopped to let him out. He looks over at me and says, will you buy me a hot dog? I thought to myself, that was forward. Sure, I'll buy you a hot dog. We walk into Hy-Vee Gas, he grabs two hot dogs and a coffee. We walk up to the place, I pay for it, we come out, he sits down right there outside the door next to the trash can, starts eating his food. And I say, take care, and I drive away. And I got to my office, and I was mad. I was mad at me. That was nice. I did a nice thing. Good job, buddy. Charity's nice. I didn't do enough. I should have sat down by him. Right there in the dirt. I should have sat down because that's what Jesus would have done. I should have told him that he was loved. I should have told him that I see him. I should have told him that I would love to know your name. I should have asked him, I really want to hear your story. I really want to know who you are. I should have brought him to a place like the bridge home, introduced him to someone like Andrea. I should have brought him over to Micah, right over here, introduced him to the people there. I should have brought him over to Romero House, where he could have found help, a family, a home, at least for a few nights, but I didn't. I wasted it. I squandered it. I didn't see it because I was blind. Because I live in this world where favoritism favors me. It favors me. I hope it happens again someday. Because I'll do it differently. Because there was the possibility of a relationship there. It was right there. And I let it go. I missed it because I was blind because the system works for me. So what do we do? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do believe. I believe in the power of Jesus. I believe in the power of Jesus that creates a new kind of community that looks peculiar and acts differently than the rest of the world. I believe in the power of Jesus to start that resurrection now, not just after we die, but right now, that transformation now that can create us, each of us, and us as a church into a, into a different kind of people, people who work alongside of Jesus to transform the world. I believe in that power. The only thing left for me to do, for you to do, for us to do, is to respond to that power. Show me your faith without deeds. Let's show everybody our faith by what we do. Drop the mic. Let's pray.